Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. On New Year's Day, 1963, I was at my parents' home in central Queensland and listening to the midday news when I heard that two people had been found dead on the banks of the Lancove River in mysterious circumstances. I had a gut feeling at the time that case was going to end up on my desk at some stage or other. Vivian Marnie was the chief toxicologist at the Government Analyst Laboratories in Sydney. I immediately booked a flight back the next morning, January the 2nd, back to Sydney. I arrived in Sydney midday on January the 2nd. As I came into my residence, the phone was ringing. I picked it up and it was my chief, Mr Og, head of the laboratory. And he immediately briefed me on the case He said that the specimen samples had come in from the pathology section from both Bogle and Chandler. The autopsy reports of the victims were identical. Both had died from acute circulatory failure. It was Viv Marnie's job to find out why. And the only logical conclusion was that both victims had died from a poison. I don't think it was any secret that was the initial assumption because there was no physical evidence of being attacked. They weren't choked, they weren't shot. <laughs> uh, it was quite obvious that it could only be one thing. Put it this way, something entered those two bodies. They had to have consumed something, inhaled something or absorbed something through the skin. They just didn't die of natural causes. That's why the government analysts then called in to try and isolate something from those organs. And we generally get the stomach, the liver, kidney, spleen, uh, small intestine. They assume that that's where, if there's any poisons being taken, that's where they would end up. Meanwhile, media speculation went into overdrive. Was it murder, a double suicide, murder-suicide, or even a practical joke gone wrong? Uh, It's hard to believe that two people ended up in the situation they did, even if it were, uh, one speculated on a mutual suicide, they wouldn't have been uh, found separately and disrobed in the manner they were. So there was no doubt about it that there was some kind of foul play. Uh, The fact that there was no uh, stabbing or uh, other type of traumatic wound uh, almost certainly meant that they were poisoned. And if they were poisoned, then you had to trace back to the party that they attended the night before. On the 2nd of January, scientific detectives searched the Chatswood home of party hosts Ken and Ruth Nash. They took possession of all the liquor, the glasses, the food, the rubbish bin... They took everything that they possibly could. 
The items collected were then delivered to the government analyst. And there was absolutely nothing but poisonous nature was present anywhere. Throughout the previous decade, less than 2% of murder cases in Australia involved a poison. In his 13 years as government analyst, Viv Marni discovered that the culprits almost invariably opted for a common off-the-shelf poison. The methods of the day were able to throw out all the very common things that would be likely to be taken as drugs and poisons. Things, you know, like uh, arsenic, cyanide, strychnine, barbiturates and uh, rat poisons or uh, agricultural poisons. Things that have been in wrong containers and accidentally consumed. If you didn't come up with an answer in about the first two days, you would have needlessly realised that there was something unusual or something that was slipping through the net. And there wasn't too many of those. Let's put it this way, it was the story of the moment. It was in everything. You couldn't put on a television set or pick up a newspaper without finding it. Sheridan Pawsey was still recovering from the shock of Margaret Chandler's death when she became the unexpected focus of the investigation. Two or three days later, I got a bit of shock because I got two detectives at the door. Scientific detectives had searched the Chandler home and removed a number of containers from the garden shed, kitchen and bathroom. The item of most interest, a receipt from windswept kennels. I asked him in and had Margaret Chandler visited me. Well, I said yes. The Chandlers possess some Jackson dogs. They bred as a hobby and they're very fond of the dogs. And I knew both Mr and Mrs Chandler. And I told them the whole story of the afternoon she had visited me. She brought some puppies out for me to look at and give an opinion. And we started talking as women do. And I'd had a few words with my husband. It turned out she'd had a disagreement with her husband. And I remember saying, oh, they should burn all men, <coughs> which made her laugh. The detectives ask about a receipt for Hydrex tablets found in Mrs Chandler's handbag. Yes, I had given her some pills. What were they? I said they were pills for tapeworm. They were very newly on the market and only possibly a, a few vets and a few breeders had them at that point in time. He said, are they safe? I said, no, they're not safe to, for people to, you know, to sit and, and, and guzzle. But thinking of the children, I had told her this. They asked if she thought Margaret Chandler may have deliberately taken the pills to end her own life. Oh, good heavens, that's something I couldn't see. No, definitely not. I mean, she, she loved her children, her dogs and her husband and her home. She was not the sort of person. She was wholesome. She, well, you know, the nice, healthy look that most nurses have, she had that. I, wouldn't, I couldn't see that. No, never. She would not be the type of person to harm herself or anyone else. Sheridan Pawsey said that she'd given Margaret Chandler no more than four tablets, which taken at once wouldn't have killed a human being. Regardless, 
the detectives departed with a sample of the Hydra-X tablets for scientific analysis. News of the development was immediately leaked to the newspapers. Because the press at this point in time were pretty desperate for anything else, front page news. And the fact that I'd given her some pills, of course, was meat and drink to the newspapers. The Sunday Telegraph came out in my absence, found these ducks and pups and put them in socks and hung them on the clothesline in the back and took pictures of them. That sort of appalling invasions of privacy. And the press also staked out the Bogle family home. My mother was definitely fleeing the reporters all the time. It was dreadful and she was constantly trying to hide from them. I just remember us feeling under complete siege and I I think they were all sort of waiting out there on the roadside, most of them, and and some of them would come up to the door as well. I do remember one time she had to try to get out by going through a neighbour's property to get away from them. From what I recall, she told me that she did speak to one reporter because he said he was sorry and he expressed that empathy. And also he was sorry for, for all this harassment and so that's the only one she actually spoke to. For the newspaper editors, the most pressing issue was to obtain a photograph of the prime suspect, Geoffrey Chandler. These vultures just persisted and persisted and persisted and went to extraordinary lengths to try and get pictures. I went to extraordinary lengths to stay away from them to avoid being seen, which meant I was not able to live in my house in Croydon. I was unable to go to work, which meant that for the first few months I stayed at other people's places. I got the impression that they were after him. To me, it almost seemed as if he was being hunted. As the press hunted down Geoffrey Chandler, toxicologist Viv Marnie analysed the victim's tissue samples for Hydrex. You look at the toxicity of those worming tablets, they're poisonous. You know, every label has on it poisonous, but considerable quantities have to be consumed you know, before they kill you. Viv Marnie found no evidence to suggest that Dr Bogle and Mrs Chandler had consumed worming tablets. I'd say after three days, everything was coming up negative. You would have expected something to show up in those three days. And there was just nothing except for a bit of caffeine. I knew then that this was going to be a challenge to me anyhow. I never realised it was going to be such a challenge. On the tenth day of the investigation, with still no breakthrough, the state opposition leader demanded the government post a reward for £5,000. Not only had the Bogle-Chandler case become a political issue, it was about to take on the complexion of a television game show, with respectable scientists contesting the prize. Sydney University pharmacologist Professor Roland Thorpe offered the services of his laboratory to aid in the search of the mystery poison. The state government pressured the police to accept the offer. The pressure I could have done without were so-called experts on the outside wanting to take sample, which was running out from me. 
Professor Thorpe's expertise lay in cardiac pharmacology. His students would conduct experiments using tissue samples to detect a cardiac poison. Professor Thorpe had a fellow working on chick embryo as a means of detecting poisons. That is the fertilised egg of a chicken. You can see the heart beating, and his PhD was on that certain drugs and poisons responded certain ways. But what worried me was the ulterior motives. He was after money from drug houses and things like that to fund his students on PhD courses. It annoyed me that he went through the press, and I can still see him after I delivered the samples, coming outside, and the press were out there putting up his thumb, I just say, I got it, I got me sample. And I thought, well, good luck to you. What did they find? Nothing. <laughs> nothing, now nothing. I didn't expect him to. By now, scientific detectives were unable to find any evidence of a poison or a drug on the victim's clothing, at their homes, in Dr. Bogle's car, or his laboratory. They even returned to the crime scene to search for venomous spiders. That area in northern part of Sydney was prone to funnel-web spiders. So we then had one of the scientific investigators make a search of the area for any trace of funnel-web spiders, but this proved entirely negative. On New Year's Day, police divers had abandoned a search of the river bottom due to the polluted state of the waterway. Eleven days later, the divers returned to the river, donned their wetsuits and air tanks, and tried again. The, uh, the skin divers were searching for anything which could have been involved in causing the deaths. They might have been looking for a hypodermic syringe or a bottle of poison. But the water was so murky, their search had to be carried out by feel alone. It was a dirty river. It's so muddy and uh, polluted. The divers couldn't see. They had to feel their way when they were diving. They were just looking for anything. But of course, there was nothing there. The crime scene had offered up no evidence to suggest how the victims had died. But the bizarre manner in which they were both covered suggested that a third person was at the crime scene that New Year's morning. Someone who may not have been implicated in the deaths, but may have information to help identify the killer or killers. Of course, the thing which intrigued me and all the other investigators from day one was the aspect of the bodies being covered. The clothing was so neatly placed over the body of Dr. Bogle so that the casual observer, such as the young boy who found him, he thought that the body was fully clothed. And it wasn't until a closer inspection was made to find out that the clothing was just so neatly placed over the body, even the legs. Then we come to Mrs Chandler, and it has been suggested that Mrs Chandler may have placed 
the clothing over Dr Bogle to keep him warm and then struggled about 40 feet and put herself into this depression in the ground and covered herself up with beer cartons to keep herself warm. I really discount the fact that uh, she did that herself because people generally don't cover up their whole head. So this leads us to who did it. The police homed in on two suspects. The first was Raymond Chalice, who under interrogation admitted to being a peeping Tom. He claims that he didn't see the bodies and I would doubt that Chalice is the person responsible, mainly because Chalice only has one arm and I would feel that a one-armed person could have put the beer cartons over Mrs Chandler but he would have had a great lot of difficulty putting the clothes over Dr Bogle in the manner that they were. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The second person of interest was Greyhound trainer Eddie Batiste, who'd exercised his dogs on the nearby golf course. Batiste had only come forward when he read in the newspaper that a member of the public had provided the police with a description of his vehicle. And it is possible that he may have covered those bodies up. One thing that makes me think is that the dogs have a wonderful sense of smell, thousands of times better than ours. If he was there alongside of the the river, you know, only yards or feet possibly, from where Mrs Chandler was concealed, the dogs possibly may have sniffed her out and he may have been the first person to find her body and cover her up. Batiste claimed that he'd walked his dogs to the golf links via an upper track, not the riverside track where the victims were found dead. The police, however, were sceptical, particularly in light of his three-week delay in coming forward. Like all the other aspects of this case, we're only working on supposition. The New South Wales Police had an outstanding record. Of the 52 murders carried out in the state over the previous 12 months, they had solved all but one. But with no answer yet, as to how Dr Bogle and Mrs Chandler had died, Sydney's tabloid newspapers delved into the victims' past and their relationships, looking for a motive for murder. The press exploited every possible angle in this type of story as they would. This had all the elements that any journalist could ever wish for, and the main part of it was not only these facts, shocking facts, but it allowed for the imagination to run wild as to how that happened. Gerald Stone was a feature writer at the Daily Mirror. It was easily assumed 
that if you find the bodies of a man and woman on a riverbank, both of them with no overt signs of violence, that they had been poisoned and that possibly they had been poisoned because they were carrying on an illicit affair. Uh, and so it, it was uh, all stops out. On a tip-off, Gerald Stone headed down to the Royal George Hotel in Sussex Street, Sydney, a favourite meeting place for members of a libertarian subculture known as the Push. The Push, in the terms that they were defined in 1963, were anybody, mainly university students or university lecturers or people who associated with them, artists, journalists were in the Push, uh, anybody who didn't exactly observe the mores of Sydney society. Its membership included Jermaine Greer and co-founder of the controversial Oz magazine, Richard Neville. By now, Geoffrey Chandler had become its most notorious member. I think you could say they were sort of the intellectual bohemians. It's a vastly interesting and exciting world. So instead of being constrained by conventional morality and conventional religion and conventional societies, you had freedom to indulge whatever you liked. If you wanted to have sex with somebody who was mutually attractive, then fine, I suppose you went and did it. Sydney at that stage was living in this unreal situation where here you had some of the healthiest, most free-going people in the world. You'd, you'd go to beaches and see these beautiful bodies, male and female bodies, walking along the beach, sunshine, everything good. And yet the society was still largely under the thumb of the churches and the RSL and politicians who were very conservative. So it was considered uh, absolutely scandalous that there should be a, a pub where you could go and pick up a girl and drink too much and maybe have sexual relations with each other. This was certainly meat for the salacious mills of the gutter press, free sex and all this sort of nonsense. It wasn't really. They were all in their own way quite moral, highly moralistic people, except they had different attitudes. The push closed ranks and protected Chandler from the nosy tabloid reporters. But three weeks after the case broke, a Daily Mirror photographer snapped a shot of Geoffrey Chandler in another hotel. He was in the company of an attractive blonde-haired woman, Pam Logan. The photograph painted Chandler as cold and heartless with questions to answer. Detectives already knew about Geoffrey Chandler's relationship with other women. And they were also aware that Margaret Chandler had at least one affair. My husband, he wasn't my husband then, he was my boyfriend. He had a brief affair with Margaret. Claire Rudkin was a friend of the Chandlers. Jeff had asked him to court Margaret because he tended to feel guilty that he had girlfriends where she didn't have boyfriends. So he encouraged my boyfriend, Bill, to have an affair. That's why Jeff told the police. He said, well, you know, if you don't believe me, ask Bill, because he couldn't ask Bogle because he was dead. Detectives questioned Bill Berry, who verified that Jeff Chandler had arranged the affair with his wife. 
I never really felt that Jeff could have been involved. I would have been really surprised because I did know that he believed in this open marriage very strongly and I believed that he and, and Margaret had a good relationship. I was convinced during the investigation that uh, Mrs Chandler and her husband had an entirely open marriage. Even to the extent that he encouraged her relationship with Dr Bogle. A week into the investigation, the detectives had a new suspect in the frame for murder. Mrs Margaret Fowler. She'd worked in the same building on the Sydney University campus as Dr Bogle and claimed that they had a relationship for a number of years. But just prior to his death, Dr Bogle had ended the affair. On information supplied by Geoffrey Chandler, the detectives knew that Margaret Fowler was present at the CSIRO Christmas party and was in an emotional state when Dr Bogle disappeared into the shadows with Margaret Chandler. Dr Bogle had a relationship with a lady called Mrs Fowler whose husband was a scientist. We considered her very carefully and her husband as possible suspects. She was very upset at the fact that he was no longer taking an interest in her and was apparently following her around and remonstrated with him as to why he wasn't paying her any attention. The detectives interviewed Mrs Fowler on five occasions. She confessed to stalking Dr Bogle and had threatened to suicide with barbiturates when he showed disinterest in her. They believed she had an intense and delusional infatuation with Dr Bogle, and his rejection of her was a possible motive for murder. We considered Mrs Fowler and her husband very carefully as possible suspects, but our investigation showed that she was certainly at another New Year's Eve party and this was substantiated and couldn't be regarded as a suspect, and neither could the husband. Our main purpose is to obtain the truth of what happened. And sometimes we have to go roughshod over people's feelings. If it's the only way to solve a mystery or a murder, we must do it. I'm sure that the other people involved in this investigation felt a lot of embarrassment. In particular, Mrs Bogle. She is a lady who I always had the greatest sympathy for. You had her husband, a very honourable man so far as the public were aware, suddenly made into a person who was having extramarital affairs on the front page of the press. It must have been terribly upsetting and embarrassing for her. For true crime aficionados, make sure to buy a copy of Sarah Staveley's astonishing book, A Consequence of Cake. Set in London's Soho Square in the 1740s, it's the story of a dispute between two schoolboys which turns deadly and triggers a battle between wealthy sugar merchants and the aristocracy and ultimately embroils the king. Purchase through blackwattlepress.com.au or Amazon Books. Coming up in Episode 3 of Who Killed Dr Bogle and Mrs Chandler. 
The atmosphere at the inquest was very great. The media were certainly interested. The public gallery was always overflowing. I wasn't guilty, so why should I require representation? And he said, unless you are represented, you are going to be churned up in mincemeat. I was a naive 23-year-old, and I thought, oops, you know, they're going to think I've had something to do with it. If I was going to go through all these way-out requests as I regarded them, you know, I was going to eventually run out of sample. Make sure to catch Merchants of Menace, another Blackwattle true crime investigation. It is undoubted that Nugent Hand Bank was involved in drug trafficking. At one point, Nugent Hand became the conduit bank for the CIA. It was 1980, and a merchant banker dies in mysterious circumstances. It was probably an execution, was my immediate assumption. Soon after, his business partner disappears without a trace, or so he thought. The owner of a well-known bank rumored to have ties to the CIA and organized crime vanishes off the face of the earth. Tonight, it's where he turned up that has people around the world shaking their heads. Merchants of Menace is available on your favorite podcast app. Wow, what a story. Who Killed Dr. Bogle and Mrs. Chandler podcast series is produced by Black Bottle Films with the assistance of the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia. Hold up, what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.